Good morning, SunWest. It's good to be together. How many of you guys have ever been uncomfortable in church before? Okay, everybody's hands going up. You're like, yeah, this morning. I felt really uncomfortable. Um, there's been many times where I felt uncomfortable in church, uh, both as an attender growing up and even as a pastor. There's those moments where you're like, that was uncomfortable. Uh, I can remember uh, one of my earliest uncomfortable moments I was growing, uh, when I was growing up. Our family went to church every Sunday uh, growing up, um, and we had, those, uh, we had the pews. You guys been to churches with those pews, right? Uh, those were really uncomfortable, uh, and it's hard to sit through a whole service uh, in those pews, and look at the seats that you guys get to sit in, and for those of you at home, you're sitting on your couch, and this is a different kind of thing, right? Uh, and my parents would give me like Hot Wheels cars, and I would play underneath the pews to just help me sit through the service. Anyway, I remember I grew up, and I was old enough to sit with the, the teenagers in church, right? So I sat with my parents, uh, like all the kids did until they were in about grade eight, uh, and then there was a section where the youth sat, and I don't know why we thought this or why they thought it was a good idea, but the youth actually sat in the front row. The, the, the preacher wouldn't preach in the stage center, but he would preach on the, the side uh, of the stage. And there was like a front, there's three rows, right? One, two, three. And there was a front aisle here. And the kids would sit in the front bench right in front of the pulpit where the preacher would preach. And I remember it was like my first Sunday. Uh, I got to sit with the big kids and me and all my friends uh, went up there and, and we just we just were talking the whole service. Uh, and uh, apparently the, the preacher was like glaring uh, at me and my friends. Uh, my family sat, we had like the normal, everybody kind of had their normal spots, right? And so my family sat the opposite side of that front section at the back. Uh, and I can remember my dad uh, observing what was happening with me and my friends. Uh, and he got up out of a seat during the message uh, and... Uh, walked along the back and then came down the whole aisle. And it's like, in a church like that, you don't get up, you don't walk around when uh, the preacher's preaching. And so the the whole church could see my dad coming down what felt like a very, very long aisle. Maybe it's a smaller church than I remember, but a very, very, very long aisle. And he comes and he sits down in the front row right in front of me, right in front of the preacher, and he kind of pinches my neck. And he just sat there for the rest of the service. And I was so uncomfortable. Uh, it's like, Dad, you're ruining my vibe here. And my friends aren't going to want me to sit with them anymore. Uh, and so after that, I lost that privilege. And I had to go sit back with my parents for a little while uh, until I grew up a little more. Uh, I've had some uncomfortable moments in church. And we can make light of it. And sometimes there, there's funny, uncomfortable moments. Uh, but sometimes there's uh, significant uncomfortable moments. Uh, And we've, uh, I think, are going through a time in history uh, where the church feels a little uncomfortable, where people aren't quite sure what to make of it, uh, where people uh, have different polarizing views on the church, where its role in culture and those within the church uh, even have uh, mixed feelings on how comfortable they feel in church. Uh, You have folks from all over the spectrum and polarizing views on all sorts of things from theology to politics to whatever. And then we come to church together and it can feel uncomfortable, especially when you saw, you know, Brent's Facebook post and you're like, I really disagree with that Facebook post. 
And then you come and you sit beside Brent or Lisa or Julie or whoever the person is. I'm, I'm making up names and I... Um, anyways, so you sit beside them and you're like, this is uncomfortable. I feel very differently than this person about that. Uh, and so we, we actually, we talked about this series and, and we thought it would be really good to do a series uh, about the uncomfortable aspect of community. Uh, I think post-COVID season, uh, we're actually all learning to uh, what it means to actually be in community and relationships again. Uh, you know, that feeling when you first go into, like I went to a concert for the first time last week in a couple of years, and you're like sitting shoulder to shoulder with like everybody. You're like, this feels strange. You're in my personal space. I never thought that before, uh, but now I feel like my personal bubble got bigger, right? And so we are relearning how to be together, how to talk to each other, how to... Uh, how to have different views on things, and it be okay. Uh, and so this series is about uncomfortable, being uncomfortable in church, and the awkward and essential challenge of Christian community. Uh, and if I could tell you my dream church, I, I'd have all sorts of ideas. You know, my, my dream church um, would be amazing. It would be just perfect for me. Uh, you know, you come in, and there would be, like, the best coffee in the world, uh, Single origin coffee, drip coffee. There would be lattes, cappuccinos. It would be amazing. I would come here, my perspectives on the world, on politics, on theology would be shared among everybody. Everybody would agree with me. It would be amazing. you know, we'd come, into the, we'd come into a church building, it'd be like the, the perfect size, all the equipment would work, we'd have enough offices for our staff. Uh, not only is there good coffee, but there'd be like a coffee shop that would run out of here seven days a week, and the community would come and be a part of it, uh, you know, and have all of these things. Uh, we'd have a number of like medium-sized group spaces, you know, in our church, we don't have like a lot of good medium-sized meeting spaces, we'd have a whole bunch of those that would meet everybody's needs, and our groups would be meeting here in the evenings, it would be fantastic. We'd be able to run uh, community events out of here, and the, it would be like a community center. So not only would we just have a church building, but maybe we'd have a gym. You know, maybe we'd have some of these other aspects that the community would want to get involved in. It would be phenomenal. Uh, maybe we had some counselors that are working out here serving the community, and you come on Sunday, and the music would be amazing. The you know, and the music is amazing. Good job this morning, Ben. Uh, we, but there would be like this common consensus that country music is not good music. Like everybody would, everybody would agree. And, uh, and the worship on Sunday would be according to my tastes, uh, which we would all enjoy as well. Uh, and I could easily get into like my theological perspectives in that uh, we would kind of agree on how we understand the Bible and God and uh, serving and giving. Everybody would be leaning in, giving extra time, extra resources, and that would kind of give us mission, missional vibrancy. There'd be passion, worship, there'd be all these things that I just, you know, I, I got so many dreams. We live in a world... Of that is a built on consumerism, uh, and it has infiltrated the church. And every single one of us could probably give a long list of dreams for the church. You know, if the church was like this, I mean, I just wish the church was a little bit more like this. I wish they would do this a little bit differently. I wish you know we we all have lists like that. Anybody got a list like that? It's just me. Okay. Um, But the problem is that when we have a dream church, 
And we're kind of buying into this, this quest for trying to find the dream church. Uh, we're always on the quest for something more, for something better. And the dream church is always a potential that's out there somewhere else, which, live, which leads to a, a discontentment wherever you are. And we live in a world there where there's chronic discontentment with church, with community, because we're all longing for a dream church. There uh, was this phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism, uh, and it was, uh, it was penned by a sociologist called Christian Smith in the early 2000s. He coined this term, uh, and, and he did a study, a sociological study, on the main baby, basically belief system, faith belief system in Western culture. And, and what he found, what he discovered the commonly held belief in the Western world was what he referred to as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Uh, now, sounds really fancy, but it's not that fancy once you break it down. Moralistic uh, just means that, you know, God wants people to be good, to be nice, and to be fair and just to each other, uh, follow the rules that God taught in the Bible. That would be uh, the moralistic stance. Therapeutic uh, means that God exists primarily to make you and I comfortable and happy and to feel good. The central goal of life is to be ha- happy and to feel really good about yourself and where you are in life. So God is therapeutic. Uh, deism is a, is a term that refers to a God that exists and created the order in the world, uh, but he's not necessarily particularly involved in the world or in one's life. Um, we go to God when we need a problem to be solved, but other than that, God is kind of distant. He exists, but he's out there somewhere. Deism as a faith is defined by a, dis- by a distant, cosmic, ATM type of God that we go to when we need a transaction or something from him, but other than that, he's very uninvolved in our lives. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And so the thinking was that this belief system, this idea constitutes most of what uh, those who claim to be Christians or followers of Jesus in the Western world actually believe. And when you take a step back, you realize that what we believe uh, sounds a lot more like Santa Claus than it does like the God of the Bible. Sounds like Santa Claus, a God that exists for our benefit, for us to be happy, for us to get what we want, that remains uninvolved in our lives the other 364 days of the year, unless we need something. But we know that he's watching us. You know, better watch out. How does the lyrics go? Better watch out. Better not cry. I don't know, but he's watching. And if you, and if you don't do good stuff, you get coal for Christmas. And if you do good stuff, then he's going to give you good, good stuff. Uh, so this is our idea of God, uh, is what Christian Smith was saying uh, in his study, that we often view God more like a Santa Claus than we do the God of the Bible. We are actually uncomfortable with a God who isn't primarily interested in our comfort. But what we think we want from a church is almost never what we need. The dream church that we have, the things that we want, are actually almost never what we need. So I grew up going to church, as I mentioned. Um, Went to church almost every Sunday of my life. When I graduated from high school, I went to a Bible college where I uh, studied the Bible, and I was around churchy people all the time. 
and I started to get fed up with churchy people, just to be honest. Um, they drove me crazy. Uh, I needed some distance. And when I got to Bible college, I stopped going to church. Yeah, I stopped going to church when I went to Bible college. Uh, for a two-year span, I didn't go to church because the church had issues. I, I don't know if you knew, knew know this, but the church has issues. There's a lot of imperfect people in the church. Uh, and the older I got, the more I started to see it. So I went through high school, got to college, uh, and you start to see all these flaws. I'm like, I'm just going to take a, take a step back. And I went two years, two full years, without ever going to church on a Sunday. I started working at a Bible camp in, in the summers, uh, and there was one summer in about 2003, uh, where everything started to change for me. Uh, and so I was pretty convinced that the church had problems, that uh, I could follow Jesus, not really be a part of a local church. Uh, there was lots of issues with local church, and at least, you know, that doesn't need to infringe upon my faith and, and me following Jesus. And so, um, so I was following Jesus. I went to camp. Uh, I was reading my Bible. I, I started to get this hunger and this thirst to read the Bible. I was journaling. Uh, often. Uh, and so I had four months at camp that summer. Two of those months were pretty much all on my own. Uh, I didn't have anybody else around. It was kind of before the rest of the staff came, before the campers were coming. And I spent a couple of months, uh, this is before phones, shocker, before phones, had no internet. Uh, I had a Bible, I had a journal, um, and I had an archery range. I got really good at archery. Uh, no. and, and so I spent a lot of time journaling praying, uh, and I got to, uh, in my reading, I got to John chapter 17, and I've referred to this, this chapter many times because it's been so foundational in my life. Uh, in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying. It's basically the prayer that Jesus gives before the passion narrative begins, before he goes to the cross. He knows that his time is short. And I don't know if you've ever been able to talk to somebody who's on their deathbed or they know that death is, is coming soon. And the things they share with you are often the most important things in their life. You know, they don't spend time sharing with you the things uh, that are insignificant or don't matter. They end up talking about the things that are really dear and close to them. Uh, and so you lean in a little bit more. You listen a little bit more carefully when somebody is in that space, that, uh, <clears throat> that place. So here we have Jesus. He's praying. He's praying about what I think is the most important thing on his heart in those final days. And so he prays for his disciples. He prays that his disciples would have courage. Uh, and we won't read it, but he, he doesn't pray for his disciples to be, he, he knows that there's, um, there's hardship that's coming. He doesn't pray for his disciples to be safe. He prays for his disciples to have courage, that they would remain faithful, that they would be united in the face of hardship. And then he goes on to pray for his future disciples, those who would choose to follow Jesus uh, beyond his current group. So that includes us. And so when Jesus is praying, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And so I got to this passage that summer, uh, 
and I don't know if you've ever had this, but it's just like the, the words were highlighted. Um, I couldn't stop reading them. I couldn't stop being convicted by them, and, and, and I'll, I'll come to the reason why in just a second. Uh, but just before we do that, uh, it's interesting, as you look at this text, uh, Jesus praying that Father, uh, help them to be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. And, and Jesus refers to this complex idea. It's very simple, but it's very complex at the same time. This mystery that has been believed throughout the age of the church, that God is three persons in one. That God is three distinct personalities, but there's a oneness to God. Three in one. He's a God of relationship. His relationship is his very, very essence. In First John, when it says that God is love, that is who God is, it's because God in his essence is the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The oneness of those three together. In fact, God's essence can't be holiness. Sometimes we hear that, well, God is holy, God is love, God is powerful. It's true that God is holy, but holiness is an, is an attribute that is in comparison to another entity. God is holy. He's set apart from something else. God is powerful in comparison to something else. God is love, is who he is in himself. God is relationship in himself. It's a divine mystery. Uh, and I'm not even going to try and explain it, uh, but it's the divine mystery that uh, as as Christians, that we, we believe this, that Jesus is God, that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, that, that, that Jesus uh, was in relationship with God the Father, that these three personalities were all one but yet distinct. And so Jesus in his prayer is referring to this, this oneness, that they would be one as you and I, Father, are one, as we experience that oneness. As they follow me, they come... Uh, my followers will be a part of this oneness uh, with us. And now if you take that concept of the Trinity and, and you think about it in the context of the rest of Scripture, uh, you will see the references to community or the church uh, often have a few different titles. One is the children of God. So think about this parallel between uh, God the Father and if he's in relationship with people, uh, those people are referred to as the children of God. If you think about uh, Jesus the Son, the followers of Jesus are referred to as the body of Christ. If you think about uh, the Holy Spirit, those who are part of relationship with God are referred to as being a part of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And so God is this triune God, three in one, uh, and yet he invites people into that oneness, into that relationship uh, to be children of God, to be the body of Christ, to participate in the fellowship of the Spirit, to join the Trinity in this unity and this relationship. And all of these titles have the same thing in common, that the relationship of people to God is dependent on God. So you're children because of the Father. You're a body because you're part of a head. You're in the fellowship because of the Spirit. That's what, where the word of comes from. Children of God. Because, because of God, we are community. Because of Jesus, we are community. Because of the Spirit, we have fellowship. The of connects us to that authority source. So all three of these descriptors of Christian community have the same thing in common. Our network of relationships is actually the result of our relationship to a source of authority. Do you see that? 
We are children. We are the body. We are the fellowship because of our relationship to an authority, to God, to Jesus, to the Holy Spirit. And so it's because of that nature, because of that relationship, that the nature of our community is is community and oneness and relationship. Not because we choose each other, but because we first chose to follow Jesus. We We first chose to actually be children of God. And so there's, a, there's this concept that I can actually be a Christian, that I can be in relationship with God, and this is what I believed as a college student, that I could just have a relationship with God, but I didn't need a relationship with the church. It is a fundamental misunderstanding of how faith and relationship with God works. To choose to be in relationship with God, but not be a part of the children, doesn't work. To choose to be in relationship with Christ, but say, I want to be in relationship with the head, but I don't want to be a part of the body, doesn't work. To choose to fellowship with the Spirit, but then you show up in fellowship with the Spirit and recognize that that includes everybody else, means to reject everybody else is to reject fellowship with the Spirit. So Jesus says this unity is so important. This togetherness is critical. Um, and so this is on his heart. This is what he's praying. Uh, and, then, and then here's the verses that really shook me. My 20-year-old self. Reading this, and these two lines I couldn't shake. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. That they may be one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then again he prays, then the world will know that you send me and have loved them. In 2003, these words haunted me. I couldn't remove them from my mind. When I read John 17, it was like they were were highlighted, that these two lions were just like shouting at me, that they may be one so that the world will know that you have sent me. In fact, oneness is not only a part of being in relationship with God. Oneness, I started to realize, was a critical aspect to the missional testimony of the church. How the church loves and relates to one another is the greatest witness to who Jesus is. And I felt the Holy Spirit, what I would recognize later as the voice of the Holy Spirit, ask me, so Matt, do you want to be a part of the solution or do you want to be a part of the problem? That's the question that I just asked myself that summer. Do you want to be part of the solution or do you want to be part of the problem? Uh, and my commitment to Jesus that summer, 2003, that uh, I want to be a part of the solution. Uh, that was the beginning of my, my call into pastoral ministry. I want to be a part of, of a witness, of a testimony to a world that's looking at the church who has all these critiques, rightly so. I had them all too. But Jesus is asking me, you can't follow me. He's telling me, you can't follow me and not actually be a part of my Community, family, my body, part of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. They're two in one, just like I'm three in one. Do you want to be a part of the solution or do you want to be a part of the problem? And so uh, I vowed in 2003 that I wanted to follow Jesus. I want to be a part of the solution. I wanted it to be a testimony in a community uh, to a world so that they could see that Jesus was who he said he was, that he is the Messiah, that he is king, that he's Lord of lords, that he's our Savior 
that we have a need for Christ. The early followers of Jesus got this. You know, we've talked in the last series about all the different people that made up the community of Christ's followers, the Herodians, um, you know, the people that aligned with Rome. And we had Matthew, who's a tax collector, who would have been a Herodian, the Pharisees, the religious elite. Uh, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. They believed in like holiness and following all the rules. He had the Essenes who just wanted to get away from uh, everybody else um, that didn't quite get it. And so they moved out to the desert. He had zealots like Peter who wanted to fight Rome. Uh, and so you had all these people with different perspectives, political agendas uh, that all of a sudden wanted to follow Jesus. And as they're following Jesus, they're recognizing they're shoulder to shoulder with these other people that don't think like them or act like them or have the same views as them. Uh, and then you have males and females, who, who in that culture, there was a big uh, gap between males and females. They couldn't talk to one another. Um, if you weren't married to them, right, there was all these rules. Uh, females weren't allowed to do certain things that males were allowed to do. And now they come into church community to follow Jesus, and they realize that they're equals. You had Jews and Greeks, Jews who were the chosen people of God, the Greeks who were the pagans, and now they, you know... Uh, Jews were, some Jews were deciding to follow Jesus and other Jews weren't. And then some Greeks and Gent- or Gentiles were deciding to follow Jesus and they found themselves shoulder to shoulders with each other. They were enemies and now they're together. You had different languages, different cultures that were coming together. You had slaves and free people. You had slaves and slave owners. Can you imagine being a slave owner and going to church and your slave is leading your small group? That would be difficult. Do you think there were some awkward moments in early Christian community? Absolutely. They didn't have all these churches. You know, right where Sun West is, we got like five churches down, down the same street even. So you don't like our church, just go one over. You might find one you, you like. And, and this time, you know, there was the, you know, if you live in Galatia, you had one church. You didn't have a choice. There was awkward moments. There was a little bit of conflict. There was a little, there was a few different perspectives going on, but they were the children of God, the body of Christ. They're participating in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. They knew that what anchored them together was not their views, their perspectives, their sameness. In fact, it was the most unlikely group of people that came together in unity because they recognized they were of God, body of Christ, fellowship of the Spirit, that what brought them together was God, their faith. And as soon as you self-select who is in, who is out, you cease to actually be the church. The church is the people of God. It's not the people of Matt. Not the people of you. It's the people of God. And you can choose to be a part of that of or not. But when you say, I, want, I don't want to be a part of a church because it's uncomfortable, because it's messy, we are actually ceasing to be the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, I think, what is the, the best book on Christian community. It's called Life Together. Um, and it's one of those books like, that I, read, I, I like to highlight and mark up my book. And, uh, and I, I have like every paragraph highlighted in that book. It's like one of those books. Probably could have saved a lot of energy and not highlighted anything, but you know, I didn't know it until the end of the book. So, uh, but there's a, there's a couple of great quotes in that book. And... Uh, One of my all-time favorite quotes from that book is this one. It says, those who love 
their dream of Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself will be destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Let me read it again, because it's great. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community. So we all have a dream church. If we love that dream more than we actually love where we are, um, we ourselves become destroyers of the Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Bonhoeffer goes on to say, God hates visionary dreaming. And that was like shocking when I read that because, you know, I'm, I'm more of a visionary mindset. I like, you know, having ideas. Uh, and he says, God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds the people together. And then he goes on to say this, when things do not go his way or her way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren and then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. If you have a dream of community, he's saying, and you are elevating this over and above your actual experience of community, and you keep looking for that dream, you are going to destroy the very community that you're longing for. And as you do that, Bonhoeffer is saying, you'll be disappointed. And how you deal with that disappointment is first you'll start to accuse other brothers and sisters. I mean, he calls them brethren because he was, he was actually living uh, and teaching in a communal kind of setting, school setting with a bunch of other men. Uh, But the same is true for brothers and sisters. He says, you'll be disappointed and you will accuse other brothers and sisters. It's their fault. It's your fault. You're the reason why this is not the dream ideal scenario. The church... There's something wrong with the church. Uh, you know, this is one of the phrases that has always really disappointed me is that people say, the church hurt me. The church disappointed me. The church overlooked me. The church is a community of individuals. So I just want to speak to this really quickly, that you and I have never been hurt by the church. We've always been hurt by people. People hurt people. We're We're... we're broken. That's why we need Jesus. Uh, And so when we get hurt by the church, it's not the church. It's not God's dream that we're being hurt by. It's, It's people, desperate people, broken people like you and I, and we hurt one another. And so we're not, when we're rejecting the church, we need to just be honest and say, we're not actually rejecting the church. We're rejecting people or experiences that we've had that have been hurtful. Um, and so when, when we're disappointed, Bonhoeffer saying we begin to accuse one another. 
Uh, Charles Spurgeon had a quote. Uh, he said, if I, ever, if I had never joined a church till I'd found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I become a member of it. Still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. And so sometimes we forget that we are one of those broken people that make up the church. Uh, so when we're disappointed, we begin by accusing other people. Uh, and then Bonhoeffer saying, from that point on, we move to the second step, but we start accusing God. It's God's fault. Does God really know what he's doing? God, where are you? Why don't you fix this? We start pointing our finger at God. Do we really believe that we could do a better job of setting up God's plan in this world than God himself? That's a dangerous place to be. Do we really want God to jump in and act swiftly and justly every time we've been wronged or offended? Because that would mean he would act swiftly and justly with us. So the very nature of our faith is one where we acknowledge that we need grace and forgiveness, and that's the foundation of Christian community. When we prevent that, when we, don't, we aren't willing to give that to other people and we start to accuse God, uh, we are rejecting the very foundation of what has actually brought us to relationship with God and others to begin with. So Bonhoeffer is saying, well, after we move to that step of accusing God, some people will begin to be an accuser of himself or herself. And in my experience, peace, people easily go through those first and second ones. I see those a lot as a pastor. Uh, but then that third one is a very despairing place. But it does happen. That people eventually go from church to church, group to group, community to community, blaming others, blaming the church, blaming God. And then they might start asking the question, well, what's wrong with me? And then they start taking on things that are untrue about themselves. Bonhoeffer's suggestion is that we need to let the dream of church die. He said, it's actually causing us pain. It's causing us disappointment. When we look in communion, we see another person, we look in their eyes and we see their story. Uh, They are who they are. We are who we are. And there's rough parts about that. There's uncomfortable parts about that. Uh, But that is the beauty of Christian community. Because the goal is not to become more like ourselves. The goal is to become more like Christ. And so when we are together and we are the body of Christ together, your different views, your different perspectives, your different emotions, the things that you're seeing and feeling, all of those things give me an opportunity to be more refined, to be more like Christ. We work together to be more Christ-like. And if we take ourselves out of each other's lives... We actually lose the peace that helps refine us and sanctify us to be more Christ-like. I mean, you may have noticed that I've been wearing slippers. These are really comfortable. They're my sabbatical slippers. (laughs) I'm going to be in these a lot in the next few months. Um, No, I, I wear these. Most mornings when I get up, I wear them. Uh, they're, really, they're really great. Um, you know, I love comfort. Actually, when I was in high school, I had a goal to make the most comfortable shoe in the world. I bought uh, the most lazy shoe, I should say. I bought a, I bought a Velcro 
shoes and I cut off the heel. I cut off the end of them. So they, could, they were like Velcro clogs is what I called them. I could slide them in and they were Velcro. Come on. That's pretty amazing, right? Uh, so I wore those in grade 10. Uh, but um, I love these shoes, these slippers. They're comfortable. I wear them around the house. Uh, and in some ways, I would say they're the most comfortable footwear I own. Uh, but the truth is that they're only comfortable if I do nothing in them. They're only comfortable if I do nothing. They're only comfortable when I walk into my living room and sit on my chair and read a book. They're really comfortable. But as soon as I start doing something in them, they're the most uncomfortable thing I could possibly wear. I don't run in these. You think that might be obvious? I don't bike in these. I don't, I don't go skiing in these. In fact, my bike shoes, my ski boots, those are in some ways the most uncomfortable footwear I own. But when I'm skiing, when I'm biking, when I'm doing those things, they are the most comfortable footwear for that activity. Is this making sense? Running shoes, bike shoes, ski boots, work boots are not more comfortable than shoes on one hand, but as soon as you do the intended activity that those things were intended for, they become the most comfortable thing you could wear. If the purpose, if the main activity, the main goal of Christian community is to follow Jesus and to be like Jesus, the discomfort of community is one of the most critical and essential aspects of church. If you choose comfort as your guiding principle, as if I was going to decide to go out for a run, first of all, I wouldn't run, but second of all, if I were to go out for a run... I wouldn't put these shoes on because you would say those shoes are not fit for the job. If you are looking for a comfortable community, the church is not the place to find it. You will be disappointed. It will not meet your dreams. It will be messy. It will be broken. There will be misunderstandings. You'll find different perspectives. You'll find people that, that see things, understand things very, very differently than you. But the peace that brings us together is the desire to follow Jesus and to become like Christ. And for that purpose, we actually need the discomfort. If you recognize that all things don't fit into your dream church picture, uh, we will actually begin to reject the very thing that God put in our lives, one another, to help us become more like him. I want to invite you to stand with me. And, I, and as we close, I want to ask you to reflect on Bonhoeffer's comments that if we cling to a dream church, we will either become an accuser of one another, an accuser of God, or an accuser of ourselves. We'll point the fingers at each other, we'll point the fingers at God, or we'll start pointing the fingers at ourselves. And I want to invite you to close your eyes for a minute. And just reflect on this question. Uh, do you have a dream church? Have you been disappointed? Have you been hurt? With your eyes closed, just you know, put up your hand. Is there a dream? Is there an expectation? Is there hopes Is there that you've been hurt by that haven't been met? You know, my hand will be up. And my second question is, have you kind of moved to this place of pointing the finger at other people? maybe pointing the finger at God, maybe you've started to point the finger at yourself, 
or there's one of those three stages that you found yourself in, you can put your hand up with your eyes closed. Thank you. All of those reasons we put our hand, the, the disappointments that we have are actually gifts to us. They have the potential and the power to refine us to be more like Jesus. The different perspectives, the people that forgot us, the people that we have a hard time forgiving, this is the place where we work out our faith. So, Jesus, we thank you that you love us, that you have grace for us, that you have forgiven us. Um, And we, Lord, know we need that to be in relationship with you. And as we come into relationship with you, we recognize that we have brothers and sisters because we're your kids. We recognize that we are part of your body because you are our head. We recognize that we only have fellowship with you because of the Holy Spirit, and that is the same for all of us. And so the very, our very ability to respond and follow you necessarily brings us together into this space together. Lord, we thank you that what unites us is your lordship, your kingship. What unites us is what you've done through your death and resurrection. What unites us is our need for you. What doesn't unite us is our similar perspectives and views on everything. And we thank you for that because you didn't call us to make disciples of ourselves, but disciples of you. So, Lord, would you give us courage to embrace the uncomfortableness of community? Would you give give us courage to make space and grace for one another? May we see you in the eyes of the other. In the name of Jesus, I pray. you're like me and you know when I was 20 and I wanted church to be more like a pair of slippers bending and you realize that uh, they weren't really up for the task that if the goal is actually to become like Jesus uh, that what you thought was comfortable is actually the last thing that you need um I think if we're following Jesus, church is a little bit messy. It's a little bit hard because we're not united by our likeness. We are united by our oneness in Christ. And that can be painful. Uh, But that's part of the pain of becoming like Christ and being a part of him, uh, which is the beautiful mess of faith in church. Um, And I know this probably means something different for all of us. Uh, But as you know, we have prayer teams available at the end of services. um, And maybe you can relate to one of those three categories that Bonhoeffer was talking about. Uh, You know, this is an opportunity to actually be community together, pray for one another, whether it's at the front or where you are, if you came with somebody. Uh, But I invite you to allow uh, the community, brothers and sisters, to pray, to minister, to meet each other in our brokenness or disappointments, our expectations that weren't met our hurts, uh, and we can actually be a part of God's healing in our lives by being vulnerable together. Um, and so that opportunity is always available to you at the end of service, and I invite you to come forward if you'd like. Um, other than that, have a great week. We have a starting point that will be happening uh, during the second service. If you haven't taken that, you can stick around for that. Let me pray as we close. Uh, Father, we 
ask that you would make us one as you are one. That we would actually give up our dream, surrender our dream of church, surrender to your dream of church. Um, Lord, we thank you that you've made space for everybody. And it's because of that that we have space here. Uh, And so, God, I just pray for that posture of humility that we as a community of faith, as SunWest, that we would leave space and grace for one another, that we would see uh, the value and the gift of each other that you've brought us together to follow you, to become more like you, and to be a testimony to the world who is looking for hope in a hopeless day. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Have a great week.